The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host this week. So excited to be speaking with Dr. DeLorean Griffin. He is a plastic surgeon. He is the owner and founder of Griffin Plastic Surgery. He graduated from FAMU before going on to Wayne State University uh, for medical school as well as residency. Dr. Griffin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. Let's start at the very beginning. When did you decide that you wanted to become a physician? Oh, a physician? Um, Probably in college when I was at FAMU. You know, I started off at FAMU uh, as a graphic arts major. I didn't like it very much. I was always, yes, artistically inclined, but um, I also had that, that kind of that left brain affinity for for the sciences in particular. And so I, I switched my major to the dismay of my mother, who was uh, distraught that I, I gave up a <laughs> full scholarship <laughs> and switched my major to uh, biology pre-med. Um, and so during that process, I still didn't know if I was going to pursue medicine or dentistry or forensic pathology or something else or be a pharmaceutical salesman who knows but as things went along you know I, I did pretty well in my you know in, in my classes uh, you know I, I eventually graduated magna cum laude and, and so you know kind of some, some of the people around me were like well you should maybe think about going to medical school and probably around my junior year or so I, I probably dedicated myself to taking the MCAT and trying to get into medical school. Interestingly enough, um, I had never I had never met a black doctor personally. Wow. Um, even while I was at FAMU, well, I met a couple at FAMU, but it, they were like, you know, it was certainly not, not specialty people. And it was close to graduation when I met a couple of family medicine doctors, you know, which is counterintuitive to go into a, a black school. But uh, took the MCAT, had to take it twice. But uh, eventually got into Wayne State in my hometown of Detroit. Nice. And you said you're a graphic arts major at, at FAMU with a scholarship? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I've been, you know, if you follow, you follow my page, you know, how, yeah, yeah. you know, you see my, some of my artwork. And I'm so artistically inclined that everybody thought that was my true passion. It really wasn't. Not, as, not from a career standpoint, you know, you know, we all hear about starving artists. You don't hear too much about starving doctors if you if they're out there we all know that but to the you know in, in general you should not be in a position where you're you know uh financially you know financially unfit as a position so so my you know it, it's, it's as ironic as it is with when my mother pushing me into art um i was striving to be a doctor uh, so then you you left, you went home from uh, FAMU to start medical school. How was that transition? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't great. Uh, we didn't have a, a very strong biology department at FAMU at the time. Few, uh, quite a few of my colleagues, you know, matriculated and we went to uh, to medical school. But just the structure and, and the lack of uh, staff and the lack of resources, you know, a lot of those resources as it pertains to getting those review courses for the MCAT and really knowing how to take the test weren't there. So I, I scored uh, around average 
you know, I, I, re- I took the Kaplan course and went up one point. But but still, you know, I had strong score. I had, had strong uh, GPA. Yeah. And that allowed me to get, get my foot in the door and get, get into medical school. And it may have helped being in my hometown. I don't know. Yeah. And, and coming from uh, HBCU to PWI for grad school, how was that transition? Um, it, well, you know, I had... You know, I, I wanted to go to FAMU specifically for the fact that, uh, you know, you're around your own people and you're around like-minded people. But, you know, and also coming from Detroit, it's a majority black city, but I also lived in Maryland, in the, the suburbs of Maryland. So it was a very diverse. And I, I lived in a, a town called Gaithersburg, which mm-hmm. is a Montgomery County suburb. You, yeah, you're in Virginia. You might know. Um, but it's a very diverse area. Pretty much any, any demographic can be represented. And so that, that transition to a PWI, even though I'm in a majority black city, still I was able to kind of, uh, you know, I w- it wasn't any type of culture shock being around different cultures. The Wayne State was a uh, school of medicine is, I think, still the biggest single campus medical school in the, in the country. Wow. Yeah, at the time we had 265 students. And it's, it's well beyond 300 now. Yeah. So out of that, it was probably a good 40. Uh, no, it was less than that. Probably we had a, a big class for, for Wayne State, and it was about 27 black people. Yeah. But, you know, as we do, we band together <laughs> within our, you know, whatever black organization you may have, black medical association in our case. Yeah. So as you progress through medical school, um, at what point did you settle on plastic surgery? Well, here's here's how things went. You know, I did pretty pretty okay in, in medical school. I, I adjusted well. I didn't have I didn't have you know I didn't have, you know I passed step one just fine. You know, I did uh, probably slightly better than average, and um, you know passed all my classes. During that time, you know, I was still drawing because for me it was a therapeutic outlet. You know, yeah, I, I was doing doing a lot of the of just portraits and I did t-shirts for the black medical association and, and, uh, for our, um, black history month, uh, program, I did like all the black doctors and posted them around the school. Actually caught some flack for that. <laughs> I, I didn't get the proper permissions, I guess. I don't, but, um, but I say that to say that a lot of my, my colleagues were like, you, you pretty much need to do one of two things. You either need to be a medical illustrator or you need to be a plastic surgeon. Hmm. And for whatever reason at the time, I didn't really uh, see a connection between plastic surgery and, and just like fine arts. But what I did was I, t- I did a, uh, before I even did my general surgery rotation, I did a plastic surgery rotation beginning of my, my third year as an elective. Um, and I was just blown away because I latched onto this, this, uh, Mostly reconstructive surgery, but did amazing, amazing work, craniofacial and um, flap reconstruction and breast reconstruction. And uh, at that point, you know, I kind of got under his, uh, you know, he took me under his wing. And that is kind of the rest was history. But I didn't go in. I didn't I didn't apply for plastic surgery. I just didn't think I had the the scores. They were okay, But, you know, you know. But at the time for integrated plastics, it was, yeah, yeah it kind of had to be in the top 10%, probably. So I didn't want to waste my time. So I just applied to general surgery with 
plans of maybe going into plastics. I still wasn't decided, but mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I applied to Jet Surge and, and got into a residency as a categorical there, and De- still in Detroit. Um, gotcha. Which which helped because I was still able to connect with that that position, who also helped me get into plastics. So I did the five year um, residency, full five years, and then did an independent program in the same program. At at uh, Wayne State, at, at, yeah, Wayne State Detroit Medical Center. Gotcha, and that was a so it's a three year fellowship. Yeah, so it had gone the year before. It had just gone from two to three, which <laughs> which in a strange way deterred a lot of people from going into it. I mean, okay. I'm like it's only in, it's only one more year, and so that didn't that didn't deter me. But what it did was kind of made it. <laughs> less competitive, so to speak. And not to say I wasn't competitive, but, you know, it made the pathway a, a little bit easier. Gotcha. And again, you know, I, I was able to be with this professor that was that was able to uh, guide me in the right direction. So if we want to jump into my, my plastics fellowship, which I also did at Detroit Medical Center, you know, it was kind of the halfway point. A professor of mine, he, uh, we were going to the OR, he wound up having an MI right in front of me and, and passing away a few days later. Yeah. Yeah. And so halfway through my um through my program, I was like, hey, this is my mentor. Like we were like family at that point. And he passes away. And so that kind of left me with a the sense of hanging in the breeze, but but at the same time, you know, he lived on through through his with you know with surgical skills and knowledge he had he had passed on. I carry that with me to this day. What was his uh, What was his name? Dr. Bala Krishnan, Dr. Bala for short, Indian fellow. But man, he was masterful. He was uh, he was masterful, and um, and you know, like I said, he treated me like family. It's clear the uh, incredible, lasting impact that he's had on your life and the trajectory of of your career. Absolutely. So, so Dr. Griffin, what w- what would you say was the hardest part about becoming a plastic surgeon? Um, honestly, it's, the, the exams are very difficult in, in plastic surgery, probably more difficult than they need to be because we cover such a, I mean, if you think about plastic surgery, it's, it's head to toe. It's, there's no part of the body that, that we don't operate on pretty much, you know, uh, I mean, on the outside, so to speak. So, and it also includes a lot of derm. A lot of ENT, mm. all my mm. tests, <laughs> the the non-invasive stuff, all the lasers. We had, like the, the exams would would ask you about the nanometers of the lasers. Oh, mm. uh, it was these the in service was very difficult. I did well on them. I I don't know. I studied my butt off, but uh, but I happened to do do well. I actually got the top score two years in a row, which kind of got some people that. That weren't that didn't hold me in such high regards off my back, yeah, for whatever reason. Um, but you know, it prepared you. It prepared you well for the boards, which is it's a very difficult exam. But um, you know, there's that. There's kind of deciding what you what type of plastic surgeon you're going to be, and implementing that. And I, and I give I give hats off to any anybody who could you know, jump off the porch straight out of residency and go into private practice. And I would say that's, that's 
at, even at this juncture, you know, I'm six years out of residency, that business aspect is something that we don't get taught very much about because you, you are a business owner. You have employees now. You have overhead that you have to meet. You have to, you know, you have payroll. Let's talk about those first six years uh, after fellowship training when you, you started to practice. Um, how did that go for you? So I, I happened to look up um, because uh, for me, the most ideal circumstance was to be employed by somebody who would pay you a steady paycheck until you got busy, you know, uh, allowed you to study for your boards, you know, kind of gave you that time and gave, also gave you some CME money. And, um, and like I said, for me initially, that, that is a good thing. And what, what, what tends to happen is you, by the time you get busy, um, most hospital systems don't know what to do with you, especially if you become more of a cosmetic surgeon or implement more cosmetic surgery into your practice. Um, because of the cash and just how it's distributed and, and people just, it's, they, they, you know, most hospital systems don't have that business savvy um, uh, mentality, you know, as a part of the systems based uh, entity. So there, there. Uh, I tell everybody, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to every situation. I think that you know you, you're going to have a, you you have a you have a contract, you know, and most people I, I think don't stay longer than their first contract if if they're going to be hospital employed and and they made a name for themselves. I happen to stay a little bit longer, with, you know, two three year contracts, but you know. I got busy probably after that that third year, and after that point, you know, you you, you have a lot of uh, not only restrictions by being a hospital employee, but you also have a lot of you know, uh, or lack thereof support when it comes to some of the advertising and some of the control you give up during that process. And so, you know, my, my mentality started to evolve and to a point where, you know, I can do this for myself. So, so let's dig into that a little bit. You said the, the way the cash is distributed, especially when it comes to maybe cosmetic procedures. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, so I mean, you know, the way, the way uh, a lot of, if you think about it, you, you probably know all about the RVU system. You know, most specialties, if they're employed by a hospital, paid through RVUs, which is a relative value unit, which kind of ascribes a number to whatever procedure you're doing, right? So when you deal with cosmetics, it's, it's difficult because they're paying you cash and they don't really have a way of accurately distributing, you know, ascribing a certain relative value unit to that money that they give you. And so I get, <laughs> I get a, um, you know, you get a salary and you get a bonus, but a lot of times you're going to feel like you know, you're being shortchanged in, in those in those situations because because of the way they they've now distributed that 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 money, um, and oftentimes feels like it's an unfair situation. So maybe you know if a procedure costs five thousand bucks, a patient's paying you cash or they're paying the hospital cash. 
they're paying the hospital the cash. The patient pays kind of one fee. They're paying the facility fee. They're paying the cash to the hospital with a surgeon's fee on my behalf. And then supposed to be, you know, kind of converted into our views. Mm. And it doesn't always line up. And that's what happens probably in, in most situations across the board. Hospital employee situations for plastic surgeons, I think, are great if you're doing uh, the vast majority of reconstructive cases. Because there's no ambiguity there when it comes to the CPT codes and how it's, it's, it's kind of converted. But if gotcha. I do a BBL, nobody knows what. <laughs> no, there's like one, there, at the time, there's one fat graph code, which could be, you know, 50 cc's of fat versus. 500 cc's per butt cheek and that's doing the butt bbl is a lot more involved in than putting in a few cc's of fat around the breast yeah and i imagine a bbl from dr griffin would be different from a bbl from joe schmo down the street potentially yeah there's a there's a variety of reasons for that i think um you know there's some ethnic reasons you know reasons why you know, there's ethnic ideals, so to speak. I think, uh, you know, our people, African-American women, and a lot of Hispanic women, the increasing number of white and Arabic women want more volume, more curves, more more of a voluptuous figure, more curvaceousness. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we, we make them bigger. Man, you know, that, that's, that, that, that's, that could segue into a lot of things. Um, but the RVUs are the same. Yeah. So the RVUs are the same, right? Mm-hmm. Right? So whether I do put in 200 versus 500 versus 1,000, even though it's more work, that gives you an example of how, gotcha. you know, how non-equitable it can be. Yeah. And then, and then you mentioned different restrictions that you may have as an employed physician versus being on your own. Yeah, and that's going to vary whatever situations, because I have friends that <laughs> that were in different hospital systems and they set up their own website. They allowed them to at least and even gave them a stipend to do so. Uh, that, that was never happening with me. I tried. And so my situation became all pretty much word of mouth. Oh, whoa. whoa. So they, they could tell you that you cannot have your own personal website. Yep. I could not have my own personal website. I could not have, I could, I could, I can have my social media, but yeah, they're going to be kind of keeping an eye on that to make sure you're staying on message while you're employed under them. And I had a few talking to not getting any more of those talks, (laughs) but that, that that just goes into it to um, how uh, you want to become your own entity separate from the hospital as it, you know, as it evolved anyways. So for me, uh, I'm, I'm a natural hustler. I've been, I was selling my artwork in elementary school. <laughs> With crayon? Hell no, I was I was I was in advanced elementary school at artist. I was I was shading and, and using color pencils and uh, doing watercolor, sculpting actually. Yeah, sculpting Ninja Turtles, you name it. And so, um, what I did was I went out and started visiting uh, air salons, um, spas. Sarge parlors, um, you name it. I even with I even put some of my business cards in my tailors, my tailors uh business, and you know eventually 
And I think it helped me being black in a black city and just being my hometown. The word word got out quicker than than it, than it may have in, in other circumstances. And I was able to build build a practice off of word of mouth. Wow, that's one. Oh yeah, I hustled. I and mean, when they try to, you know, they come to you and they say, "Well, you're not you're not doing enough. You need to do more." <laughs> and I show them what I've been doing, and I said. You got to open up your books to see why, why it's not translating into what you think is non-productivity. Hmm. Eventually, they got the picture. So after six years of working in this setting, which again, you know, like you've mentioned, different strokes for different folks, it works for some people. But eventually, after six years, you said it's time to, to make some changes. And you stepped out on your own. You recently opened your own practice, Griffin Plastic Surgery. Um, Talk about that. Yeah, uh, last Tuesday actually, I saw my first set of patients. So, you know, when I when I separated from the hospital, which I knew was inevitable, um, it was a beautiful thing. It, it was like it was a, a big blow for freedom because I knew that even though I didn't have the, the financial support, I didn't at that time I didn't feel like I needed it anymore. But I knew I had the control at that point. Mm-hmm. Control over marketing, control over how I interacted with my patients, control over, you know, um, and now I can book PR, you know, um, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, PR programs. I'll be on Channel 4 here in Detroit next, yeah, next week. And I just have the freedom to do that without having to ask for permission first. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Now, they, they kind of, the way they kind of transit, you know, they, they, there wasn't much of a transition. So I, it kind of left the patients that were waiting for me hanging in the breeze. But oh, man. the beautiful thing was they followed me. Because they try to tell you, like, because you can't take patients, like, there's some rules or whatever when you're leaving, right? Listen, yeah. So you got to, and this, this, is, this is really important. And I, and I employ, implore everyone on the first contract, have a lawyer kind of go through everything with you. My contract wasn't really complicated, but there's always going to be some type of not, you know, not compete language. Yeah. Uh, some, you know, there's always going to be um, non-inducement of staff, which essentially means you can't, not necessarily that you can't take staff with you, although, you know, the legalities could, it could fall under that. But you definitely can't go and say, well, I, I'm going to pay you more than the hospital is. Why don't you come over here with me? So I, so not only do my patients want to come with me, the staff wanted to come with me, too, because, you know, everybody, you know, I'm, I'm talking about everybody from the OR to my office staff to receptionist, everybody. And, um, you know, I couldn't afford to hire everybody. But um, but I kind of had to. You know, I think what we did was came to a meeting of the minds and they weren't really buttheads about about a lot of stuff. My non-compete mm-hmm. was only five miles. You can see some contracts out there. Non-compete is 50 miles. Even in a, if you're in a metropolitan area, yeah, you're out of that area, you know. <laughs> so the five mile thing was was easy for me, you know, to, to set up shop where I wanted to. And the, the kind of inducement of staff thing, I think if you... You know, you put out an ad, staff and patients. Yeah. So in plastic surgery, you're not going to tell somebody where they, they're going to have plastic surgery. You're not going to say, well, we have plastic surgeons still in our system. 
this is elective surgery. Yeah. They're going to go where they want to go. So that, that was kind of an easy thing. And I, I didn't have to dangle any, uh, <laughs> any fruit or, or, uh, or any of that in front of people to, to get them to come over to rip and plastic surgery. Yeah. So as you start to build this, you have to find an, an office, like what, what went into getting this off the ground? So, so yeah, it's, 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 it's not easy. Um, the best thing is to talk to somebody that's done it before. Cause the first thing I did was reach out to a realtor and, and kind of found some space. And it, in this environment with the COVID, it actually worked out because there was a lot of space to rent. Mm-hmm. Cause initially I was, you know, I was going to team up with a dermatologist and, um, and we were going to buy a building together to start a practice. That didn't work out because it wasn't a lot of inventory for sale, but rentals, there was a lot and they gave very good deals. Like right now I have a deal where <laughs> I don't have to pay, pay any rent for five months. And so that worked out and it, and it's, it's like five minutes from my house as well. So there was that. Then you had to think about other things like, you know, you have to get recredential because you're getting credential with the hospital. It's not huh. being the same. It's, it's not like you're, you're just leaving and you get to keep your credential. You have to be recredentialed under your, your business. So you have to form uh, a PLLC in most cases and, you know, get a, get an EIN number and then, you know, get recredentialed at, at other hospitals. And thankfully for me, I didn't have to, you know, I, I didn't have to deal with any type of non-compete because I, I think, I think the hospital kind of saw some value in the things I was doing like taking call, seeing a lot of mm-hmm. uninsured patients. So there was that. There was finding your staff. Uh, that was kind of easy knowing who your staff, you know, the people that worked with you previously and, um, and, and you know, could offer. You've already, you've already vetted them. And so if you can get around the language of non-inducement, I think that's a great way of going about things. Otherwise, just find a staffing company, getting equipment, getting you know, getting supplies. So uh, it's all stuff that's not easy. And it's all stuff that's really not easy in COVID. Yeah. And all the delays and, you know, all of the uh, supply chain issues that, that everyone's having across the border, across every industry. Right. So, so you, so you have your office, you get your staff where you can see patients um, and then you get credential to other hospitals you can use their operating room is that how it works yeah yep and um you know the best 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 thing for me was to get credentialed at a few hospital systems try not to spread yourself too thin when you do that try to stay, you know for me I, I was able to stay kind of on this on the west side of, of metro detroit uh, but i know i know people coming straight out of residency they just get credentialed at every single hospital and they're just from hospital to hospital, taking call at every hospital. You're burned out that way. You you burned out on residence, you know that, right? You don't want to be burned out as an attendant. <laughs> it's just uh it's just not worth it. Yeah, so so when it comes to Griffin plastic surgery, tell us where you are, um, the market you're serving, the um services that you're offering. So I'm I'm mainly um mainly breast and body. I do some face. I don't really do rhinoplasty because I feel like I, I would need the extra training to really learn the nuances of 
because every every slight move that you make makes a huge difference in, in aminoplasty. So, in most of the people that do it are super specialized. They don't you don't, you don't just dabble in rhinoplasty, right? You really have to know the intricate details. And in I, I I did a few in residency, but it wasn't enough to make me feel comfortable. So mainly um, mainly breast and body, um, tummy tucks, breast lift, breast reduction, um, a lot of BBLs. And then you know I was blessed to. Um, here's, yeah, this was, this is a good thing about being a part of, uh, of the hospital because they they were a, a high volume bariatric center, mm-hmm. and so they were feeding me patients from day one for their tummy tucks, skin tightening procedure, breast lift, um, back lift, thigh lift, arm lift, all of that. It's, it was it was funny because I um, <laughs> I always thought I was going to be the BBL guy coming straight out of residency. I'm like, you know, I'm black. People know who I am. I think in Detroit and uh, and this is a black city and you know everybody wants these big booties I'm going to I'm going to be this BBL king and <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't happen overnight um, I had to really get my name out there because a lot of people gravitate towards the Miamis and the, even going out of the, you know, the medical tourism in the Dominican Republic yeah. do a lot more but what I became was the arm guy <laughs> because um, because of my bariatric you know, population, arm and, you know, and tummy tucks, which is a, you know, your various skin tightening procedures. And it was crazy because I had never done any arms in residency. So I, you know, watched a couple of YouTube videos, read read publications. I got really good at doing brachioplasty. Hmm. Um, So I became known for that. Then eventually everything else fell into place. Um, So, so uh, I have a very robust bariatric population, very robust, just mommy makeover. Population. Breast reconstruction as well, but I don't. I don't really have that referral pattern right now. So, so Dr. Griffin, where can people find you um, and get a hold of of your office? Yeah, um, you can visit my website, GriffinPlasticSurgery.com. You can visit my now public uh, Instagram, Griffin underscore Plastic underscore Surgery. Got a Facebook page, Griffin Plastics, and uh, we'll be all over Google soon, and YouTube. I'll be starting a YouTube page soon as well. Everybody says I need to join TikTok, but uh, I'm a little wary about that. Uh, well, Dr. Griffin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing the world of plastic surgery and what it takes to open your own practice and step out on your own. Thank you for doing what you do and for coming out because representation matters. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You can come and do my anesthesia anytime. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, 